The 10th Collective is an initiative from Revision Path and State of Black Design created to help connect black designers searching for their next opportunity with the companies that want to hire them. So if you're a black designer and you're looking for a new job, go to the10thcollective.com to sign up for free or check out the link in the show notes. We're here to help you find your next big opportunity today. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. We're helping to raise money for Selma Tornado Relief with the United Way of Central Alabama. Now, back in January, a tornado ripped through my hometown of Selma, Alabama. And while they are slowly rebuilding, like they just recently had the bridge crossing jubilee a couple of weekends ago, it's still going to take a massive effort to get things back to some semblance of normalcy down there. If you're in a position to help, then text the word Selma to 62644 and donate any amount that you can. Also, if you send me proof of your donation, I will match it 100% up to the first $1,000 donated. Again, text SELMA to 62644. I'll also put this information in the show notes. Big thanks to all of those who have already donated. Revision Path is sponsored by Brevity & Wit. Brevity & Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They're always looking to expand their roster of freelance design consultants in the U.S., particularly brand strategists, copywriters, graphic designers, and web developers. If you know how to deliver excellent creative work reliably and enjoy the autonomy of a virtual-based freelance life with no non-competes, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit. Creative excellence without the grind. Revision Path is also sponsored by Hover. Do you have something new that you want to launch this year, like an art project or a podcast or your own website? Whatever it is that you're passionate about and you want to build online, Hover has got your back. Everything online begins with a domain name, and Hover makes the process of choosing and using your domain name a piece of cake. If you get stuck, they have a best-in-class customer support team that can help you out every step of the way. There's even free who is privacy, meaning you can keep your identity safe from hackers or any other like nefarious agents out there trying to like get your information. So get started today with Hover by going to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. For 10 years, Revision Path has been dedicated to showcasing black designers and creatives from all over the world. In order to keep bringing you the content that you love, we need your support now more than ever. If you're in a position to help us grow, here's how you can contribute. Visit revisionpath.com forward slash donate and click the donate button to make a one-time, monthly, or annual donation to help keep Revision Path running strong. Thanks for your support. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with Sean Dallas Kidd, President and Chief Creative Officer at Demonstrate XDDW. Sean has over 15 years of experience in the creative space, first starting in publishing and now extending to the agency world. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Hello, my name is Sean Dallas Kidd. I'm partner, chief creative officer at Demonstrate XDDW. I would say what I do is make brands culturally relevant 
And that takes place from brand development, naming, brand architecture systems, over to go-to-market strategies. Uh, so really trying to create programs and experiences that resonate within culture, drive talkability with uh, media, and can be shared digitally and socially. How are things going so far this year for you? This is a very interesting year. We've got some lots of tensions in the U.S. globally. And so I think this year has been another year of quick adaption to socioeconomic sort of movement that's happening around lots of new technologies that are turning on and a lot of disruption. So it's a very interesting year to roll up your sleeves, learn a little bit more, and I'd say get creative. Hmm. Is there anything major that you really want to accomplish this year? See, this year, I think the main goals for me probably start with AI literacy from a sort of personal and business growth perspective. I also want to take care of my people. I think that's, as we've kind of seen on channels like LinkedIn, being able to create a business that can sustain over time, that puts its employees and its culture first. That's one of my sort of big goals. And then obviously working with brand partners that want to do very interesting, fun, provocative work. Any sort of like personal goals, though, for this year? Hmm. Personal goals. To see more of the world. You know, I've been historically a big traveler and sort of the other thing that I love is food. So the, over the course of the pandemic, I've definitely been leaning more into traveling via my mouth and stomach. And so <laughs> this year, I would like to actually get out into the world and see, you know, what's happening in different countries and regions in the U.S. Let's talk more about Demonstrate XDDW. Um, as you mentioned, you're president and chief creative officer there pretty recently as of last year, right? Correct, correct, correct. What's really interesting uh, with Demonstrate XDDW is last year we announced the acquisition of uh, Deutsch Design Works DDW, which is a 27-year-old branding agency that was based in Sausalito. And so what we did was acquire the agency for the brand building capabilities that they had. And we thought it was a great fit because Demonstrate focuses on go-to-market strategies and campaigns and programs. And so this gave us the opportunity to not only bring brands to life and market, but really start with the fundamentals, which you often find missing when you're working with brands. So what are some of the cultural artifacts built into the brand DNA, the purpose, how do you find actions? And so we feel as though being able to help set the bar and the tone at the upfront and being able to pull that into a market will do nothing but good things for our brand partners that we work with. What does a, a typical day look like for you? Ooh, let's say uh, fidgetal. <laughs> it's physical <laughs> and digital. So Zoom meetings, hybrid meetings, writing, some design. And then the most fun part, right, of, of being a business owner is the Excel spreadsheets of things. Uh, so mm. That's one of these sort of uh, growth uh, spaces when you become more of an executive uh, creative person is getting right with the Google Sheets. 
Now, was it a big shift kind of moving from partner to president once this acquisition happened? I would say it was different, but it's been an an accumulation of experiences over time. I think that my history starting in publishing, moving into earned media, moving into advertising has become a a brick by brick process. So the transition didn't or hasn't to date been as dramatic of a shift because I have a network to help support and educate me on components and parts I might not be as familiar with on day one. So I would say the transition wasn't crazy, not to say it's not crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would imagine, you know, whenever there's like a acquisition or things like that, you're bringing more people in, of course, you're merging company cultures. So there's always going to be, I think, some clashing or, or things just as that acquisition tries to reach equilibrium, you know? Exactly. You always have different ways and means, ways of working, different kinds of processes, lead times. You have different billing cycles, all sorts of stuff that you have to work out. I would say you're the best case scenario in any merger is a mullet. You know, it's business in the front and a rock show in the back because you're trying to figure out how to get one set of systems to work with another without clashing any sort of crazy way. But uh, luckily for us, we've been able to make it through that stage. And uh, I think we're we're starting to get into stride right now, which is great. And now you mentioned that like part of your typical day, like still has some design in it. So are you still available to get hands on, like working with clients and with campaigns? Yes, yes. I feel as though I've always had, you would say, a problem with people who guard themselves off in the ivory tower, right? And so one of the things I always tell our employees is that you want to have lived experience before you can recommend a strategy to someone, right? And in order to stay current, you have to do. So even if a design direction that I might develop doesn't get picked, it helps me stay current on tools, timelines, amount of resources, different design trends, so that when I'm talking to brand partners, I'm using language and referencing things that are happening now and not when I did it back in the day, you know, 5, 10, 15 years ago. You know, I had an agency owner on here a few years back. I'm not going to call out who it was, uh, but for folks who listen to the show, they'll probably remember when this happened. But this person was mentioning that, you know, they have a an agency and was talking about how, like, they were the only black agency owner that they knew. And that, you know, he's like, he's like, I don't know about any other black agency owners. And I was like, well, that's not true. I'm pretty sure there's others out there because I've had them on the show. But have you noticed, like, during your career in advertising, many other like black agency owners? I've definitely kept an eye out on it, but I will say it's hard when you're heads down managing the work and the business to take the time to do the proper recon and outreach to folks. It's a bit of a balancing of time and energy, but I definitely have seen the spark and the growth in that space. I know a couple of folks myself that have some small studios. And then there's some folks that I look out to and see what they're doing in the New York area that are really tearing it up, which is great. Yeah. 
I mean, they're out there. It's certainly like, like you said, like they're at all sizes, whether it's small studios, big agencies, et cetera. We're out there, but it's about yeah. visibility as well, too. Yeah, I would say it's visibility. And then there is, I would say, the system of agency and connection. And so I think that it's a good way to phrase it. The hurdles for growing an agency to the point to where you get visibility Mm -hmm. is tricky when you're not a part of the club to start. So I could be a great designer, but do I have the connections to be considered or backing to be considered for some of these medium-sized, large-term clients? It's a Mm -hmm. different story, right? There's a procurement process as you start to grow your agency and payment terms that shift. And do you have the financial backing and resources or credit to be able to invest that manpower into going through one of those processes for the chance to win the business? And then can you float the business in a way that can deal with payment terms of a larger client on on a bigger scale, right? So, you know, you might move from payment terms of I'll do a project and things get paid out 15, 30 days to 40 days to 90 days to 180 days as you get bigger and bigger clients. And so you see there's different hurdles (laughs) in -hmm. order to be able to even get a bite at the apple that you have. And I think that's one of these, one of the tensions that you face as a black agency owner historically, which is why I think that's one of the reasons why you have a lot less of them with the that level of visibility. There's clients out there that are paying net 180? Yes, there are. There was a, I forget, I think I forgot what the brand was, but, and I won't even mention it, but it was a CPG brand, consumer packaged good brand uh-huh. uh, that got uh, called out on ad week and in the industry because I think they wanted their payment terms to be a year. Oh, come on. A yeah. year? A year. And so when you talk about diversity, equity, inclusivity, you can have a very talented agency, just call it a graphic design branding agency, right? Mm -hmm. And you have a staff of five to seven people, you're doing really good work. And normally you're getting paid in 30 day terms. Now that bigger client might be like, oh, I want to work with you. But then they give you a term payment of, well, instead of you getting paid a month later, you're going to get paid six months later. How's that diversity and equity (laughs) going to scale at that point with these small shops, you know? And so those become some of the bigger systemic issues. Mm -hmm. I I mean, you're right. Like the balancing act of making sure that your your clients and your cash flows is terrorist or at least coming in at a point where... It appears to be consistent cash flow, especially when you're paying employees. That's tough. But yeah. net 365, that's that's wild. Wow. Yeah, that's <laughs> what do you think makes Demonstrate XDDW stand out from the competition? I would say the way in which we stand out from the competition is we take a culture forward lens with the work that we do. So what we really try to do is drive this term we call talkability amongst target audiences that we're looking to drive brand awareness, consideration, or conversion with. We also focus on brand 
or business objectives, uh, number one. So we start there. And as an integrated agency, we do, like I said, brand naming, brand architecture, packaging, but we also do integrated communication. So that's paid media, earned media, social digital content strategy, traditional above the line advertising. And so what we look at are all the different levers of communication to drive those business objectives. And then based off the audiences that they're trying to engage with, what's true to the brand and timeliness as well as budget, what's the right mix to help drive that messaging home to help spark conversation overall. So, and that really stems from, again, that background that I've had of being in earned media, being in traditional advertising and being in publishing. And at each step, always seeing that for some of these integrated programs or brand initiatives, you know, the PR team is not in step with what the advertising is doing and the advertising team isn't in step with what the PR team is doing. And as we look at this crazy new communications landscape, it's kind of like it's better to kind of look at it holistically and then go based off these sets of truths, what is our best route into the market? Looking at all the different components and parts we have access to across paid, earned, shared, and owned channels. Now, not to sort of, you know, give away any any trade secrets or anything that you've got cooking at at Demonstrate XDDW, but what do you think are some of the biggest opportunities in the creative industry right now? Well, for me, I definitely would say AI is the biggest opportunity. I know people are frightened about it, chat GPT and everything else that's happening. But I feel as though uh, with any new technology, there's definitely going to be category leaders, new roles that new roles that come into the market. And so becoming literate in what AI is and can offer and how you can work with it is the biggest opportunity. Actually, in my mind, Web3 is AI, because if you think about being able to become an expert prompter, a creative prompt strategist for to work with an AI machine so that it can find information that can then be fact checked to create more nuanced, quickly adaptable copy or design territories for you to explore. I think that's a really interesting job opportunity. There's some cultural anthropology that you can mix in with it. So I think there's a lot there because it helps you tie in not only sort of brand DNA, but it helps pull into design trends that could be pulled live or recalibrated and personalized uh, for specific audiences. So I think it could be a very compelling tool, but at the same time, the literacy is important because you got to know what the trade-off is, right? Like, I think we all ran into social as consumers of it, not realizing that the trade-off was us and privacy and Mm -hmm. our data. And so everyone is excited to use things like chat GPT right now. But one of the things for me is 
what's the terms and conditions? All right. Like, are they going to get a piece of it? Like you go and say, oh, great, I'm going to do a Super Bowl ad <laughs> using chat GPT. Will they have some sort of way on the back end to identify that this copy or this concept came from that? Mm-hmm. And then they want points. So I think we need to really understand what the technology can do and also who's making the technology, because whoever's making the technology is creating a certain lens on where the technology starts to look for information. Now we're recording this the Friday before the Super Bowl, and I bet you there's going to be a Super Bowl ad that has some kind of chat GPT, I don't know, punchline or something. And I feel like it's, it's got to be in there somewhere. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there, there are agencies that are losing sleep right now because three weeks ago, everyone was hot to trot with chat GPT and Ryan Reynolds did a chat GPT ad and everything they've been working on in the last year just got thrown out the window and they're <laughs> going to do something <laughs> so that they're timely and can make a splash of some kind. So. Well, I mean, you know what we won't see during the Super Bowl? Crypto ads. <laughs> <laughs> I remember those from last year, and boy, have the times changed. <laughs> and this is one of the, you know, to your earlier question of staying in the work. You know, there are, the reason why you have to stay in the work is because you don't want to give bad strategic advice to yeah. brand partner. And the easy trap for someone my age that got into social at the MySpace and uh, early iteration of it and kind of settled, gave up on Facebook, does Instagram primarily to not stay current, right? To not check out TikTok and be real and some of these sort of crypto based social channels and some of these niche social channels. You start, you fall into the trap of recommending old and then you become irrelevant, right? Mm -hmm. And so agency is all around the fight for relevancy. And I think the separator for us is knowing the nuance between relevancy for demo that everyone typically goes after 1834, right? Mm -hmm. And nuance around the psychographic drivers and different folks, right? Because shared wallet goes from anywhere from, you know, a 10-year-old up to octetarian <laughs> so mm-hmm. and people have needs and the nuance comes from understanding what's going to be that right audience that you need to tap into so you have to stay current oh absolutely now we'll get more into your approach and your work a little bit later but for now let's get into your background so you're in san francisco now but you're originally from dc is that right correct southeast dc Tell me about growing up there. Well, let's say the D.C. today is not the D.C. of the years I grew up. I grew up in the 80s in Reaganomic <laughs> D.C. Mm-hmm. So it was definitely a lot rougher around the edges in southeast where I was. But I would say one of the things that always kept me curious and creative, I always loved to draw as a kid. And since, and I was also a latchkey kid, so I chose to take advantage of latchkeydom, if that's a word, to take advantage of all the free museums and zoos and public transportation you had as a minor. So I'd spend my summers going down to uh, the National Mall, 
going over to, uh, you know, the Smithsonian or Museum of Art, Portraiture Gallery, all that kind of stuff. And so that's really what sparked and maintained my interest in creativity. I, and when I went to high school, I was lucky enough to get into an architecture program. So I actually started doing that in ninth, 10th grade, uh, mm. actually drawing plans and really had a great teacher. His name was Mr. Photos. He was, uh, think of angry Santa Claus with a Greek <laughs> accent. He taught us everything and was just an amazing teacher. And that allowed me to go to SCAD, Savannah College of Art and Design for mm. architecture, actually. And so I, I skipped, I, was, I think I started on the sophomore year as a freshman, just because of my portfolio and what I learned and then got into uh, graphic design and illustration along the way. But the lesson he taught me, and I guess this has always been ingrained in me, he said, if you're going to be a great architect, you need to be able to design from the building down to the spoon. And so that was one of those sorts of thinking where it's not just about the whole, the big idea, it's down to the details and the nuance, right? And so that's just been a philosophy that I've carried with me, which helps you dig a little bit deeper to kind of understand how people move through spaces or how people engage with an experience or a design or how a message needs to be flexible, right? To be able to sit in an internal communications program and be explained so that your workforce is on board and how it can help inspire creative outputs out in the real world, whether it's on the side of a bus or some sort of 4D, 3D billboard, or if it's an augmented reality experience. So really being able to be transmedia and understanding, does this thing have scale? and flexibility. Uh, what made you choose SCAD? Well, the city, downtown Savannah is beautiful. Yeah. It's hot in the summer, but I would say I loved the architecture there. The teachers are cool. The programs are really interesting. And for me, you know, as you kind of look at the... I would say the standard East Coast go-to design schools, the Pratt's, mm -hmm. the RISD's, there was less, well, I'll just say, it was a less sense of entitlement and bourgeoisie in Savannah. <laughs> okay. So okay. I felt like I could actually learn things and experiment versus do things the way the teacher did them. I, gotcha. I, I kind of saw a bit of that trap as I was looking at some of the different schools of, you know, I think for anyone that's taking like a life drawing class or something like that, you definitely have those teachers that are like, this is the way to do it. And mm -hmm. it happens to be the way that they do it. And so I definitely wanted a place where it seemed like I could be more collaborative with different departments as well. And so SCAD just really stood out in that way. Gotcha. I gotcha. Yeah. Uh, you were in college. I think we were in college right around the same time. Like you, you started in like the late nineties, like 99. Yep. 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 Graduated in 03. Yep. Yep. Yeah, same here. Great. Same here. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me what you remember from that time. Ooh, well, uh, <laughs> when you say that, the first thing that comes to my mind was 9-11 just because I remember that uh, moment yeah. very specifically. I was a, um, an RA 
at SCAD and woke up to like one of the towers falling. Wow. And that was just a trip of a day. And the ripple effects of that are felt today. This is why we take our shoes off at airports, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So (laughs) 20 something years later. But beyond that, I would say some of the things that really were interesting to me at the time was the evolution in music. I remember there's a funny moment when (laughs) I was walking around River Street or that sort of downtown area in Savannah, and I saw a bus outside for this band called Outcast. And I was like, I wonder what they're about. (laughs) (laughs) You know, (laughs) little did I know that it was the Outcast was was coming to us all, right? Yeah. It was the same sort of time when the Gorillas made their first album, which is just a mix of every kind of genre possible with layered, you know, animation for this sort of virtual band. Mm -hmm. And they're still making amazing music now. And so it was a really, I think, funky time because it was this age similar to now of transition, right? So when you're a designer, a couple of years prior, everyone was using hand tools Mm -hmm. to do Mm -hmm. typography and all that sort of stuff. And we were there at that moment when it was like, okay, so we're getting into Pork Express and we're doing Adobe (laughs) and you're learning these new programs. And now in hindsight, you know, those teachers barely knew those programs too because it was so new. And so you're getting into the age of digital publishing in the middle of this sort of like what's happening in the world because Mm -hmm. everything, you know, America's this safe space and now this thing happened and everyone's unified for six months and, you know, it was just, a wild time and then you've got this technological boom happening and then you get spit out into this world where a couple years later you know an iphone pops out Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know it's a very reminiscent minus the pandemic part what's happening today you know yeah chaos (laughs) i mean you really had to be around during that time to realize the gargantuan amount of technological advancements that have happened from 2000 to now i mean you you talk about iphone but then just like a whole bunch of other technologies and stuff even the way that we do design online i mean back then you know design was slicing up a table in dreamweaver and posting that on the web now it's all browser you know with layouts and flexbox and all that sort of stuff not to mention you know other server-side technologies and stuff i mean I was in college in 99. I had started as a computer science major, like computer science, computer engineering, because I wanted to be a web designer. I had cut my teeth in high school in the computer lab at my mom's job because she taught at a college. I like cut my teeth reverse engineering websites and I like made something on GeoCities. And my mom was like, why are you putting our address on the Internet? I was like, we live in rural Alabama. Nobody knows who we are, you know, but I went to school, went to Morehouse Majoring in computer science, thinking that was web design, right? Well, like it was. I mean, I remember <laughs> having to do HTML coding, right? Because I, I had, um, I, I was taking some program classes, and for people who don't know, there's a program called Basic and Pascal. Oh yeah, yeah. C plus plus. So I was taking all those, and you know, the internet back in the day was code, and then you'd upload images, and like you said, you're doing slices and all that, and now mm-hmm. we've got. But what was cool about that is lacking today, it feels like to me, is that there was all this experimentation, right? Like you'd have yeah. Easter eggs on the site. You're like, oh, yeah. Sites scroll left or right, up or mm-hmm. down. 
Is it, am I navigating through this weird wormhole? Whereas now everything's on these sort of modular boxes. Yep. And so there's shades of vanilla, essentially. Um, yeah. And then however powerful your imagery is, but people are also picking up the same sort of trends on in mass at this point, which is, you know, one of the sort of fears uh, or outputs that might become AI down the line is... <laughs> Marvel movie number 856. Right. Um, but, but, you know, I think back then there was a great experimentation and we're all sort of learning and playing around. And I think that was probably part of the uh, happiness people were experiencing originally with like sort of the Web3 NFT space. Right. It kind of mm-hmm. had that same energy. It had it had some wrinkles to it. It had a little bit of like dirt in the fingernails of like we're figuring it out and we're going to make art and it's going to be awesome and we've got our own closed loop and then you know yeah (laughs) 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 i attended a metaverse conference in the metaverse was that last year i think it was last year it was last year i'm thinking about it yeah I, i attended a metaverse conference in the metaverse and one of the sessions this guy was talking about like digital real estate and he's like, yeah, we have this uh digital world and you can buy these plots of digital land. And like somebody during the presentation bought like a $10,000 plot of land that only exists in the metaverse. And it made me think of, do you remember the million dollar homepage? No. So the, the million dollar homepage was basically like, it's probably still online to be completely honest, but it's basically you bought pixels on this homepage. Like you could buy, like say you had an 88 by 31, like ad tile or something. You could buy the area of that 88 times 31 and it's like a dollar per pixel and put an ad up there. So people were just buying spaces and putting up all kinds of stuff on there. And that's what it felt like. It's like this digital real estate that doesn't really exist, but you're kind of buying into it for the hopes of it becoming something in the future, which I guess is like real real estate, but it's so funny to me, the whole digital real estate. Now, whatever it starts to morph into in five, 10 years will be what it is. And everyone will come back to this podcast episode and laugh at me for saying it. But, <laughs> you know, the reason why real estate exists and has value in real life is because we live on one planet is mm-hmm. literally a finite resource. Mm-hmm. Right. Like this is where we breathe, <laughs> hopefully. Right. Um, <laughs> and have food and light and all this sort of other great stuff. And so there's X amount of space for X amount of people and there are prime pieces on it in a virtual world. Much like if we didn't have to worry about time or eating or breathing, we live in this vastly huge universe. Right. Like in the real world. So it's like the digital world is the same thing where it's like it's infinitely large. So there's, you know, in actuality, no real prime real estate <laughs> because yeah. you can own one square inch and have it feel like a million square inches. <laughs> or, you know, you can just go to a different section of virtual town and make your own thing. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's yeah, the, the real estate part is quite, quite interesting in terms of how they attain it or how they attribute an x y z coordinate to it right right 
because like because like it, yeah in a way it just sort of felt like it was kind of like just like you're buying a plot in like a subdivision because it only exists in that particular like metaversal world that we happen to be in because the metaverse is many different worlds it's not as you're sort of saying like how earth is one finite resource the metaverse is a whole bunch of stuff yeah 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 like i could literally make my own planet in the metaverse in my own Mm -hmm. solar system in the metaverse so why do i need to buy a 50 pixel by 800 pixel piece of property across the street from snoop dogg's one place right you know and Sean, he paid $10,000 for it. And the guy like was wearing an NFT suit or something. And he kept showing off like, I can show off my NFTs on my suit. I was like, this is giving me a headache. I don't even yeah. know what to I'm make like, that's of probably this. A plan. <laughs> you know? I, I think there's, there's always what's presented on the surface and then what's happening on the back end. And part of it. Yeah. Like, mm, <laughs> did you really buy that? Was that right. <laughs> like, <laughs> okay. Yeah. So those early days, you know, in the like 2000s, as you mentioned, you know, on the web, it was really sort of experimental with with publishing and stuff. Now, after you graduated, like, tell me about your early career, because you got into sort of media and publishing afterwards, right? Correct. Yeah. So um, I had a couple of gigs prior, but I would say my sort of professional career really kickstarted in the publishing world. So I worked for Future Publishing ziff davis and maker media i started over at ziff davis and that ziff davis was really about video game magazines so i was working on their pc focused gaming magazine and then started getting really curious i've always been i would say like hardworking and curious sort of always looking to push my edges Mm -hmm. Um, and so i was proactive about reaching out to other publisher or other magazines if they needed help designing pages. And so I was very proactive and worked with Electronic Gaming Monthly or PlayStation Magazine or Xbox Magazine and all these things just so I can get more experience quicker. And then I transitioned over to Future, which is like the sort of, uh, they were essentially Coca-Cola and Pepsi as, as holders. And so they had the reverse version of everything. Um, And while I was at Future, I started their custom content division. And so that was working directly with brands to develop branded, independent magazines, websites, apps, podcasts for folks like Best Buy or NVIDIA, brands like Paul Reed Smith Guitars, did a crocheting magazine, all sorts of stuff. And so that helped do a couple of things of giving me a brief and a business objective for the brands we'd partner with and then gave me the license to concept and develop an entire magazine, for example, that would service those needs and what those sections would be and sort of design language that would go into that, not only that print piece, but the digital footprint as well. And so it was a a really great time because, you know, at, at that moment, we were making the transition or the death of print was happening, as I said at the time. And so, you know, not only were we doing magazines, but it allowed me to do websites. It allowed me to do apps because the iPad had come out. And so we're looking at how do you translate brand DNA into a digital platform space, which was a really interesting moment that I would kind of call back to the sort of tensions that are happening today. People, it was really weird because people 
had this sort of cognitive dissonance between like this magazine I'm holding is the brand and is like, no, the brand is the brand, right? Like what your brand stands for and your tone and how you sort of approach things. And it happens to be a magazine, but it can also be a website. It can also be a podcast. It can also be an iPad app or a tablet app. And so there's this sort of, you can start to see the split of mm-hmm. people that didn't want to adopt or learn. And then the people who leaned into it. And I've always been the one that just leans into the chaos because it never looks as crazy on the inside as it does on the outside. And that's where all the opportunity is. And so that was a really sort of great moment to go and take that experience over to make because instead of working on multiple brands, this was making one brand that had the business maker media mm-hmm. it had the printed magazines, craft magazine and make magazine. It then had a body of different websites and then it also had maker fair. And so now you're looking at how do you take a brand and have it stretch out into these various forms because they found themselves there and then create order around it and really sort of like bring it home so that it could grow and thrive in the midst of the quote unquote death of print. And it's still around and still still doing very well because I think part of it was learning that your brand, believing and knowing that the brand is bigger than the mass head at the end of the day, or it has the ability to be. Now, was it kind of a shift to go from like working in these publishing companies to going in-house working with agencies? Like you you also have worked with JWT, worked for Flashman Hiller. Now you're at Demonstrate XDDW. Was it a, a big shift kind of making that that change? Yeah, I mean, the days are different. It was interesting. I feel like I had a soft entry. I'll call it soft because I, before going into ex, fully external agencies, I worked in-house at Discovery Communications. They do Discovery Channel, Learning Channel, Animal mm-hmm. Planet. And so I was helping with the investigation discovery launch and show launches there, as well as Velocity Network. And so that was the agency inside. So you had to develop a pitch concept, pitch it to the marketing team or the the showrunner and come up with marketing campaigns that way. And so that was a good segue before going fully agency. Because Fleischmann-Hillard is a global, one of the big global PR agencies. So was J. Walter Thompson, which is now Wonderman Thompson. And so one's Omnicom sort of agency holding company. And I guess I always did this. I went from like Pepsi to Coke or Coke to Pepsi. And so went over to J. Walter Thompson and did the same thing. But I think the transition at Discovery really helped out because it gave me insight and understanding on what are the different outputs that come mm-hmm. in advertising with the digital lens? What are people looking for in terms of making commercials or campaign programs? So it started to really give me the language and became a good test bed for me in that transition. Fleischman gave me, I would say, my PhD and quickly pivoting your mind. I worked not only nationally, but sort of globally as well. And so I worked on everything from sort of data security to consumer goods to fintech 
to geez, healthcare, you name it. And so I would get briefs that range from internal communications programs, crisis management programs, uh, general awareness programs, and really focused on creative and content strategy mm -hmm. uh, while I was there. And so, you know, at nine o'clock in the morning, you're talking about the future of electronic payments in developing countries. In the afternoon, you're talking about the future of medicine. And so your brain has to be able to pivot because you're going to be in a room with a bunch of C-suite executives yeah. uh, talking about and really having to understand the background information and sort of ways in which culture was moving. Now, from this point where you're at in your career, what does the future of agencies look like? I would say that the future of agency is going to have to be personal. I think that interesting part, and this is why I think AI literacy is so important right now, is it gives smaller, medium-sized agencies an opportunity to scale up outputs if done properly with if integrated properly into your workflows. I think that because we're gonna have so many different digital touch points that are super niche, you're gonna have to get very personal and personalized in your messaging. And I think that the physical interaction and experience is gonna be highly coveted um, and people are going to appreciate that a lot more because you know no matter how amazing that virtual experience is people still need like just have a genetic need to engage with other people and smell the same thing be in the same room in a very real way and that's not to say that you know in 20 years there'll be some matrix version of that reality but until then i do think that people getting together and engaging with each other is going to be super important. But I do think those will be more curated, more selective kinds of engagement points with folks. Mm. Yeah, I think, you know, there's been so much talk about, you know, data-driven outcomes and, and seeing what the data says and all that. But like at the end of the day, you're still dealing with people. I mean, even with like this AI stuff, like I see so many videos on like TikTok and YouTube about people telling you how to like craft the perfect prompts for GPT and all this sort of stuff. And I think what it still boils down to is that at the end of the day, it's still humans are still the the like the entry point, you know, like well, humans are still going to be the decision maker. At the end right. Of the day. Right. You know, if you are essentially at a 12th grade level and GPT'd your way into life, and you find yourself there as a 26-year-old, like, really do the sort, the math on that, right? So you start out, and you GPT'd your way from 18 to 26. The wheels are going to fall out from under you, because at a certain point, you're going to be in a room, and you need to be able to answer the questions and defend the solution to someone else. And if you don't know your stuff, because you've been essentially the parrot for this fishnet of an answer that mm -hmm. your AI gave you, the trust won't be there. You know, like that's what all the access and the 
ability to repeat opportunity comes from earning, cultivating trust over time. And that's a human thing. Mm -hmm. And so if you get to the point to where you are pointless, you won't, you won't, as a person, have any need to be in the room with people. And so I don't know if I lost the point on that one, but I do. No, think no, no. I think you yeah, I think you're spot of, on. Yeah, it's a bit of it's a balance, you know. Yeah. What have been some of the most important lessons you've learned in your career? Being comfortable getting uncomfortable is the most important lesson I've learned in my career. I've touched on it over the course of our conversation, but being proactive when transition happens, jumping into the chaos, because I firmly believe that's where the opportunity lies. And when that new messy space opens, if you're over there first, you get to make mistakes on a small scale, right? Like imagine putting out a bad tweet when Twitter just started or mm -hmm. putting up a lame Instagram post when Instagram first started. That's the best time to do it. You learn how the audience interacts on the channel and get feedback and get better. You do not want to be doing that high wire act in the middle of the Super Bowl for the first time. Right. You know, so like getting into that space, understanding the language, understanding the nuance and the flow of energy there gets you smart on it. And because people will eventually come there because that's where all the change is. That's where all the new is. That's where all the sort of cultural influencers are being born and sparking new kinds of innovations. So eventually everyone's going to get there. So always being comfortable with getting uncomfortable is hard. <laughs> it's uncomfortable, but I think the reward there is the most fruitful for a sort of long-term career as a creative, not as somebody, you know, and I, I think you've probably seen this over the years. There's lots of people who used to be a designer, used to be a creative, mm -hmm. used to be in marketing, right? And the difference is not just some of the systemic stuff, but it's staying relevant, right? And yeah. in order to stay relevant in today, you need to be smarter than what's happening today which means you need to be ahead of the curve a little bit. So like, and that's a hard thing to sort of keep up with. It's, you got to be the little Wayne, <laughs> of the you know, he's coming up on, you know, he's been doing it since he was 12. So yeah, it, it just stays up there, you know? And so you got to be the little Wayne of whatever you're doing in life. I still remember little Wayne from, uh, those CDs in the nineties, no limit. And everything. Yeah. yeah yep. Cash money. Cash money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what is it that, that keeps you motivated and inspired? Because I can imagine, like, this is not an easy thing to sustain, this kind of thing with being comfortable with being uncomfortable, because you're sort of always kind of jolted out of balance in a way, I would imagine. I mean, to be very straightforward with it, family keeps me motivated. You know, I have a kiddo and... She is a spark of joy. And so that situation keeps me motivated to keep wanting to do better from just a sort of fundamental lizard brain section of my mind. Um, <laughs> creating room and space and opportunity for her and creating. I've seen my dad do that so I can do it. 
mm-hmm. you're not going to one-up him, right? Like having that yardstick in front of you, I think, is a great driver. And then I would say, for me, another motivator is just I am curious and I feel like my brain is creatively broken. It's like a faucet that doesn't turn off. You hear the conversations of people going through these dry periods and, I, you know, I'm not trying to toot my own horn or anything there, but it's like my brain just does not shut up with things it wants to do or mm-hmm. think about or see. And I think that comes from living that, um, trying to have a more balanced life of like, and you asked me the question, like, what are some of the hobbies and things that you you like to do that like kind of spark you? Like, those are the sort of the sustaining breaths that help keep passion and curiosity going. And so when you cultivate or try to cultivate a life where Monday is not a dreadful day, Monday is just Monday. Mm-hmm. And now the dreadful part of the day is, well, now people are going to expect me to respond to an email because <laughs> it's <laughs> not the weekend. But at the end of the day, I'm writing or designing or talking to people or trying a product or trying this or going to an event. I'm like, that's dope. It's a good thing. And, you know, it just takes effort to stay on the ball. But I think that 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 just comes with it. Now, who are some of the people that have like helped you reach this point in your career? I would like to thank myself. No, I was was like, I couldn't remember that new bow quote. Uh, I'd like to thank myself for the hard work. Um, (laughs) But honestly, I think it's a bit of that. Just like you got to know your center and you got to know your truth and you got to play to your strengths and you got to build up your weaknesses. I've been blessed in meeting very kind people that have cracked the door open and given me opportunity That comes, again, from the fact that, you know, proving or being in that sort of energy state where you are proactively looking to grow. I'm more willing to open the door to someone that I see that's working hard and looking to grow and looking to be challenged than someone that's sitting on their laurels. Mm -hmm. Luckily, the people I've engaged with were willing to open the door. And then I have a great network of friends and colleagues to be able to bounce ideas off of, hear what they're going through, take lessons from that and make connections and references. You can't do everything by yourself. You know, it's one of the sort of points I always teach. I always stress to my daughter, she wants to become the next Hayao Miyazaki. And I go, that's awesome. And Hayao Miyazaki has not only is a great drawer and a writer and all that sort of stuff, but he also has studio space that he has to pay mortgage on <laughs> and employees that. And so he has a CFO and he's got, da, 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 you know, <laughs> so, you know, he's got to work about licensing deals and everything else. So it's like, you know, you got to have a good network as well and make those connections. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? Like what kind of work do you want to be doing? Man, I've on my bucket list, I want to do some shit in space. I really want to do something in space. Okay. <laughs> like, I'm going to put that energy out on this podcast. If somebody knows someone in any country that's doing something in space in the next five years, it would be great. I think that would just be a trip. I don't want to go underwater. You know, 
<laughs> I don't want to go into like any of that deep sea stuff, but like space would be kind of just like, I feel like that would be a mind altering, crazy thing and inspirational thing to do. Something dealing with logistics and like, doesn't that sound cool? I'm working on an interplanetary logistics program. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or like, you know, this new bougie hotel that's in low earth orbit. And so mm-hmm. I've got to do like a promotional campaign or video or like collaboration thing. Like that just sounds dope to me. So that's what I want to do. <laughs> I interned with NASA for two years when I was in college. And like, so it's funny because like we were talking about college and you mentioned 9-11, like 9-11 was like one of a, a turning point for me too, because the program that I was in, the the way they had it set up, it was uh, based off of Ronald, Ronald E. McNair, who was in the Challenger explosion. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, his family put together a foundation, whatever. So we were, I was a McNair scholar at Morehouse. And the part of the NASA thing was that you interned at NASA for two years and then afterwards you basically had your pick of any like nasa facility to work for so i was like bet i had done my first one in california did my second one in alabama and and i thought i was like all set until 9-11 happened and then like the funding shifted towards the creation of this new department called the department of homeland security and they were like yeah and they were like yeah and they i remember they called us all into the office and they were like yeah the seniors you know will still be able to kind of go forward to um to work at NASA facilities. And I was a junior at the time, but they were like, the rest of y'all, you're on your own. And I was oh, like, oh, man. I say all of that to say that I, I think now, certainly like 20 plus years, you know, in the future from when I graduated, like there's probably more opportunities for designers to work with NASA and space than there were back then. Like I think back then it was still pretty... I don't want to say confined to academia, but like you've got even like people on TikTok who are like budding astrophysicists that are are doing stuff that has to deal with space and everything. So well, I, f- I, I feel it like it's possible. Well, yeah, I mean, I definitely think it's possible. My mom actually used to work for NASA. She's a mathematician. And I think the terms they used to use back in the day, though, for people like my mom mm-hmm. was data analysts. Ah, right. yeah. Right. Give them a, a data analyst title versus a data scientist title. Save yourself a hundred thousand dollars, <laughs> <laughs> and go hide those figures in the back somewhere. I do think that the opportunity today is a lot more open, but the work. It'll be curious to see how willing people are to do the work. Because you always see do the work as the hashtag, but the sort of underlying effort, right, sustained effort of doing the work is the great equalizer in a lot of ways. You know, yeah. you, you you will get tired and then you got to get that seventh and eighth win at the end of the day. <laughs> Look at you. Your mom was a hidden figure. Look at that. Yeah. It's weird. <laughs> like, you know, it's funny. I've got these old photos and stuff of her on like some airplane thing really <laughs> it's just this weird stuff. well the thing about dc is back when i was there in the 80s it was like a bunch of little black ladies that run all the sort of 
inner operations of the government at a mm-hmm. certain point because they were all the secretaries and they were working in like, you know, they were the data analyst or this kind of thing. And they were just working in the back, you know? Wow. Yeah. So. Well, just to, you know, kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more information about you, about your work and everything? Where can they find that online? I am so Googleable at this point in time. You can literally type my name in, but you can follow me at Kid is Goat, K-I-D is Goat, G-O-A-T. You can look at the company, wearedemonstrate.com, or you can look at ddw.com if you're interested in branding work. But that's where you can find me. Look me up. I'm out there. All right. Sounds good. Sean Dallas Kid. I want to thank you so, so, so much for coming on the show. I really think that like your authenticity and the passion that you have for your work really shines through. I mean, even just from your early days of getting into publishing with the work that you're doing now for Demonstrate. I like what you said about like having to be in the work. So you kind of stay one step ahead. It's that sort of thinking that certainly I think is going to take all of us as creatives far, but certainly it's been such a boon for your career and for your life. And, and I'm really excited to see the Sean Dallas kid project in low earth orbit one day. I think it's going to happen. So Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. All right, thank you. Big, big thanks to Sean Dallas Kid, and of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Sean and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Revision Path is sponsored by Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They're always looking to expand their roster of freelance design consultants in the U.S., particularly brand strategists, copywriters, graphic designers, and web developers. If you know how to deliver excellent creative work reliably and enjoy the autonomy of a virtual-based freelance life with no non-competes, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit. Creative excellence without the grind. Revision Path is also sponsored by Hover. Building your online brand has never been more important, and that begins with your domain name. Show the online community who you are and what you're passionate about with Hover. With best-in-class customer service, free Whois privacy, and more, Hover is there to help you bring your online dreams to life. Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch a multidisciplinary creative studio located in Atlanta, Georgia. Our executive producer is Maurice Cherry, and our editor and audio engineer is RJ Basilio. Intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. Transcripts are courtesy of Brevity and Wit. If you like this episode, please let us know. We're on Instagram and Twitter. Just search for Revision Path, all one word. Or you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to get ratings and reviews from there. You could also follow us on Spotify. You can follow us on Amazon Music. Or you could even call our hotline and leave us a voicemail message. That number is 626-603-0310. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.